0: He's able to fundamentally change lives, isn't he? He's changed your life and my life. He's able to do dramatic things in our lives that transform who we are and change everything that needs changing. Let's look at a text that emphasizes that, Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5, I want to talk about the power of God. I want to talk about how God is able to fundamentally and completely change Anything in our lives, from how we think, to how we act, to how we speak, to how we view the challenges and trials of our faith, and how many of us know that God has more than enough power to handle anything, that has more than enough victory to conquer all the things that we deal with, and to handle anything that's going on in our lives. He's already secured that victory, he promises the victory to us. He makes us overcomers. He gives us his spirit to indwell us. He has all the power and more and more and more that we need. And as he does that, as he expresses that power in our lives, he alters us at the same time. Now, I know from my own life, and I know from two decades plus of counseling and ministering and encouraging people, that we as believers don't always believe that. We don't always access that, that power that God puts in our lives. and There are many times when we don't fully understand the power that God has given us to have our lives transformed and to have a new way of thinking. So I want to deal with a passage this morning that that helps us understand that more fully because if we don't understand it fully, how is it going to be realized in our, our lives and how are we going to remember that God gives us that power? that God has indwelled us and filled us with that power to have our lives be transformed. Now, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. I want to just read the first five verses to you, and then we're going to stop, study a little bit, and then we'll move to the second part of the passage at the end. Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken to pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Now this account has a lot of important details and a lot of spiritual truth to it, and those details play into what we need to understand about how the Lord works. So let's start with context, let's start with our background, let's start with our geographical location of what's going on. If you would put up the first map. Jesus has gone from the one side of the Galilee to the other. This is where Jesus spent most of his time, up right here. Everybody see that okay? All right. This is where Tiberius is, this is where Capernaum is. Jesus and the disciples spent most of the time on the western shore, but at this time, they've gone over to the eastern shore right about here. That's what's now the Golan Heights. And they have gone to a different area and a different side, and the crowds are following them. If you'd put up the next slide, please. This is what the region looks like. Again, the Sea of Galilee is not large. You can look at it from one end to the other. This is where I was just pointing, over by Tiberias. Tiberias is right about here. Purdym's up there, and they're going over to the Gerasenes, which is right about here. You see the mountains over here. Very beautiful, lush, fragrant region. Would you go to the next slide, please? This is typical of the area about where they came in the boat. And the man apparently was up at these hills and the caves where there were tombs, and he was wandering around here. The one thing you need to understand about the Galilee is this is a natural amphitheater. So if somebody is up here yelling, You're going to hear it all the way down here. Jesus, when he taught, taught from the base of the water, and the crowd sat on the hill, and they could hear him. In fact, I've stood right about here and heard somebody down here talking at normal voice, and I heard them just like I'm talking to you. So it's a really beautiful effect. So imagine this man, as he's yelling and screaming, and he's crazy, running through these hills, that it was heard throughout the region that created great stress and conflict. Would you go to the next slide, please? This is right about the area in the Gerasenes where Jesus would have landed the boat. You can see the terrain. It's kind of rocky. The water's kind of uh, choppy there. Uh, many times the Galilee has kind of a chop to it, um, but it's a very beautiful region. Would you go one more, please? Oh, the next one. Never mind the next one. So you get a sense of the topography. You get a sense of the region. You get a sense of, of the layout of the land. And now they're over on the eastern shore, Now, the context is important from the text, not just what we see geographically, but right before this in the text is the passage where Jesus and the disciples are out on the boat and there's a storm that comes up at night. You remember that passage? Not if you remember that passage. If you don't, just look back about 10 verses. And the storm raises and the disciples are fearful and they're screaming and yelling and they're going nuts because they think they're gonna die. And Jesus gets up and he calms the water and calms them down and says, why were you afraid Why did you have very little faith? So the atmosphere as they come to the other side is a little tense, a little stressful. There's still some kind of inner dialogue that's going on and some internal dialogue between them and kind of figure out what happened. and Why did Jesus rebuke us? And we do have faith. You know all the things that we say, right, when somebody kind of scolds us a little bit? But there's also a sense of relief. Well, at least we didn't die. We got scolded, but we're alive. So they get to the shore, and and things are just kind of a little bit emotional turmoil. But once they get to the other side, another traumatic event takes place. If you look at verse 2, it says that immediately this man with the unclean spirit comes running up to Jesus. Now, at face value, this is a very scary situation. As Jesus is stepping out of the boat, this crazy, violent, demon-filled, bleeding, naked man comes running up, a man who was known to be unbelievably strong, who couldn't be restrained by anything. People had, had taken him captive and restrained him, but he just broke the chains and ran back into the hills, and he's smelly from running around the tombs, and he's constantly been screaming and yelling. I mean, you've got to get this metal picture, because the text is very graphic. And how it describes him. So so here's this man, and he runs up to Jesus. There's nothing normal about him. There's nothing normal about this situation. This man had inspired fear throughout the region. Nobody knew what to do with him. But he comes running up to Jesus. And I got the sense from reading and studying this test this week, that the disciples probably didn't even they weren't even paying attention. I mean, they were so used to crowds anywhere they went. But, but now they've just gone through this trauma out on the water, and they're probably docking the boat and, hey, check out the boat. You know, did it sustain any damage in the wind? And the waves were hit us pretty hard. Peter, check out, see if the side panel's okay. So, so they're, I think, distracted at this point. And Jesus kind of, they land, and, and he gets out of the boat. The disciples aren't expecting anything significant about to happen because we just had that big thing. And all of a sudden, this crazy, naked, wild man comes running up to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't even flinch. He should, in in his humanity, be intimidated or terrified because this man's kind of dangerous. But there's something about this man that's also very tragically sad. Because he didn't have capacity, he didn't have his faculties about him. He was tormented physically and emotionally and spiritually. Imagine the sounds that just came out of him. It says in verse 5, constantly day and night he was screaming among the tombs and gashing himself with stones. He's simultaneously grotesque and pitiful. And this wasn't maybe the type of people that they were used to seeing. There were Lame people and blind people and people with leprosy and problems. But but this guy was different. Everything about him is tragic and awful. Because that's what sin does. Sin makes our hearts grotesque. It brings us down in every possible way. It strips us of joy. And it negatively shapes the mind and corrupts the heart. And it strips away any sense of happiness or contentment. was driving yesterday afternoon through a northern suburb that's one of the wealthier suburbs down uh, in North Chicago, and I looked at these mansions, and I was around people that kind of were elitist and looked at me because I was from Wisconsin, and my kid had a Packers hat on, and, you know, I'm carrying my Chick-fil-A cup, and I'm like, yeah, I don't belong here. But as we drove out of the suburb, my wife and I were talking, and we said, you know, what does it cost to to just live here. The mortgage and the taxes, the insurance, and it's probably, probably $150,000, $170,000 a year just for that. And then you've got to have somebody to clean the house and somebody to do the yard because you can't have a yard that looks like mine living down there. I thought people, we, people chase after things that, that don't matter, things that bring false security. And it not only clutters the mind, but it causes us to be preoccupied with with trying to maintain status. It always comes back to loving self more than loving God. And it hit me as I got home and finished what I was studying that 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 had to be in play with this guy. Because if he's filled by demons, and the demons always push us to love self instead of loving God, then somewhere, whether he wanted it or not, somewhere in his life, He was completely preoccupied with self. We don't know how lucid he was, but but because of the nature of sin, there was a complete emphasis and push towards self. And that's enough to make anybody scream. Selfish people are not happy people. Selfish people are tormented people. This guy's tormented to the nth degree. He's just out of his mind crazy. He's screaming and cutting himself and he's naked, and he doesn't care. He's just completely out of it. Now, as we look at that text, we have to pay close attention to the detail, because it's important to see the state that he's in, because it closely resembles and parallels the state of the world. And this is what happens when sin infiltrates. If you're struggling with sin this morning, even as a believer, you're going to see these characteristics. Because this is what sin does. If you don't know the Lord this morning, and you're here, and you're not quite sure why, but somebody got you here, or you've been led here, or you just felt, i got to go to that church today. I want to tell you, this is what sin does. I'm not condemning, I'm just trying to help you understand. Sin changes, and corrupts, and distorts. Look at the description of what he was. First of all, look at that he was naked and unashamed. This is the opposite of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, how Adam and Eve felt before sin entered the world. They, at that point, were were unembarrassed by their nakedness because there was no evil intent surrounding it. But but this guy's unashamed just because he doesn't care. says he hasn't worn clothes for a long time. He's relaxed in terms of what's right. He doesn't have a moral compass anymore. Nothing is holy. It doesn't matter. He's spiritually distorted and spiritually callous. And we know even for a believer that sense of lack of shame can take uh, hold of us sometimes. We see it with, even with Noah. Great man 120 years. He builds an ark. Everybody's mocking him. He convinces his sons to come on. He loads two of every animal. The guy looks crazy. It's never rained before. But God spares him and saves mankind. But after Moses came off the ark, he got drunk and laid down naked in his tent. David, the man after God's own heart, the man who wrote most of the Psalms, the man who Jesus came out of the line of David, late in his life, late in his career, when he had everything he wanted, he sees a woman bathing naked one night, and he says, I need to have her. Sin distorts the mind. And eventually, if we allow it to take hold, it makes us unashamed, No longer are we worried about what's going to happen and about our exposure. We don't feel any sense of shame. Second, would you see that he was mutilating himself? He was cutting himself. This is so common today. Piercing and tattoo is more common than ever, and ostensibly it's it's a form of self-expression, individualism, but I was reading some articles this week that said that this is really viewed by the medical world as intentional injury. And I was reading uh, an article in the Journal of Adolescent Health that says that tattooing and piercing are usually connected to eating disorders and substance abuse and depression and social alienation. alienation. Cutting, more and more common among youth and teenagers and college students, coming from a sense of anger and self-hatred and disconnectedness, largely born from rejection from their parents and a lack of of spiritual belief. Listen, we're all made in the image of God, but increasingly, people are damaging their bodies because more and more in our culture, there's a sense of distrust and hatred and anger. I don't know if you've watched the news reports from Egypt over the last few days. The anger and the vitriol and and, and everything that's going on that such hostility, now certainly there are issues in Egypt, but think about what we're watching We're watching our ally in the Middle East, our most prominent Arab ally, one of the most stable countries in the Middle East, we're seeing it completely collapse. I'm struck more and more by how different life is than 10, 20 years ago. I keep saying that and I sound old when I say it, but we've got to understand what's going on. I read an article about Reagan this week and thought about the 80s, which are now 30 years ago, and how different it was and how we still fend... Sense that things were stable, even though the world was was very unstable. But now you don't get that sense, do you? I was thinking of our friend in Cairo, Egypt that keeps downloading our sermons. We watched this week. He didn't download this week or she. They've cut off the internet. We need to be praying for that person. We're watching the world collapse. We're watching the instability and the anger and the hatred and the sense of of kind of social and political mutilation that's going on because people don't know the Lord. Third, would you see that he was obsessed with death? He lived in the tombs. He was screaming and cutting himself. He's surrounded by the reality and stench of death. There's no light. There's no desire for the light. There's no joy. There's no life. There's nothing that woke him up in the morning and gave him a sense of confidence that there was hope for his life, let alone a God who loved him and wanted to redeem him. Have you noticed that the enemy always pushes people away from hope? He always pushes people away from the light and from the truth. And it starts with rejecting and distancing ourselves from the Word of God. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Our world this morning is increasingly darkened. And listen, we as a church and we as believers have a huge responsibility to fervently stand for and advance the Word of God so that people who are walking in darkness like the demoniac will see the light of truth, and it will infiltrate the hearts, and they will turn to Christ. But it should not surprise us when people reject it and when people are indifferent about it. USA Today had an article with Michael Douglas a few months ago after he contracted stage four of throat cancer. And they were talking to him about how he felt and he said, I like my odds, I'm not dealing with morality issues until they tell me, oops, we have to go back and do surgery. And then he took a drink and he said with kind of a smile, I haven't found God yet. You would think stage four throat cancer would cause you to reflect on what your life has been about and what you've made of yourself and what your heart is inclined toward, but he says kind of derisively, I haven't found God. Well, stage four throat cancer's not going to do it. I don't know what is. Fourth, would you see that he was out of control. I want you to remember that concept for later when we get to verse 15 in a couple minutes. But look at the description that Mark gives us. He tore apart shackles and chains with superhuman strength. Nobody could subdue him. His inner spirit was violent and disturbed and destructive. This is kind of an explicit metaphor for substance abuse and Addiction and crime in our world. How people's lives and passions are out of control. But instead of turning to the Lord, they just justify. And they refuse to turn their hearts to yield to God. What a contrast to what we're told as believers in Galatians 5, where we're told to be self-controlled. How do you and I become self-controlled? I'm not just going to wake up in the morning and say, all right, it's Monday. I'm going to be self-controlled today. Galatians 5 says it only comes from walking in the Spirit. It only comes from yielding our hearts completely to the Lord who gives us the power to not carry out the desires of the flesh. When you feel out of control in your life, you are out of control spiritually. It's not just, well, I'm really busy, and well, I've got a lot to do, and well, you don't know the stress that's on me. Yeah, I do. I understand all those things. But any time we feel out of control, there's a secondary cause. Actually, it's not a secondary cause, it's a primary cause. It's because we're out of control spiritually. We're not spending time with the Lord. We're not going into his presence. We're not seeking him. We're not hearing from him. We're not surrounded by other believers. We're trying to do it ourselves. Look at the fifth thing. (coughs) He was incurable. There was no answer. There was nothing he could do to change his situation. Because certainly, if he could have changed the situation on his own, he would have. Nobody wants to run naked through tombs and cut themselves and scream. But again, this is a metaphor for our world. Listen now. Our world is incurable this morning on its own. Our world is seeking answers on its own, trying to solve it. There was a quote by an official at the U.N. a couple weeks ago, and he said, Our problems are beyond us. You look at the volatility of the world this morning, you look at the changing face of religion, you look at the loss of moral consciousness, you look even at the economic debt of the United States, which every second increases by $52,000. As I said that sentence, it went up about $350,000. We're in turmoil. We're in chaos. There's no solution. Cleverness and governmental rhetoric is not going to solve this. The only thing that is going to solve it is the spiritual. This problem in our world this morning is not political or territorial. It's spiritual. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can subdue what is out of control and solve what has no answer. This man has no hope. He has no plan. He has no ability to save himself until he meets Jesus. He's alone and alienated and tormented and he's screaming and he's out of his mind and nobody can subdue him and he's ripped apart by demon possession. And let me tell you, this is far worse than anything you and I are going to deal with this week because Christians can't get to this point. We know from Job, That God restrains the devil in what he can do to us. And he tells us, you have my spirit. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never allow you to be out on your own. You are secure. You're mine. And you'll never be given more than you can handle. And my presence and my power are within you. I'm the only one that can help. you." Now, that's the context. I'm not going to spend as much time on the last part. But we've got to understand the situation before we can understand the solution. Now take it and look at verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. But Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to Jesus, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there were a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored Jesus, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. Notice that the demons have to get permission from God. They don't have ultimate power. Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them And they drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country. And the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Look at that phrase in verse 6. If you write your Bible, underline it. It says, seeing Jesus from a distance. That's the turning point. Running, screaming, naked, cutting himself, bleeding, out of his mind, out of control, unrestrained, walking in the tombs. And all of a sudden, the boat comes in, and the disciples are distracted, and Jesus steps out, and it says he saw Jesus from a distance, and he ran to him. Notice first that he comes to Jesus. You have to come into his presence before your life can be changed. You can't worship God from a distance. You have to go to Him. He's already come to you. He already came incarnate and filled a human body and fulfilled the law and died for your sins and rose again. Now He says, you need to come to Me. How many of us know this morning, I want to hear a loud amen after this one, that we can always go to Jesus for help, no matter how bad our situation is. And He will, the Bible says in no way cast us out. You will never come to God and say, Lord, I need help. I'm broken, I'm wounded, I have no answers. Please help me. God will never say, "Uh uh-uh. He will always help. He says, come to me. You're weary, you're heavy laden, you're burdened, you're like the donkey that's loaded up with all the stuff that's kind of wandering like this. He says, your life is like that, not with all the stuff you have this week. But with all the stuff that sin brings. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I'll take that burden off of you. I'll solve it. I'll make you fulfilled and joyful and content like you never have been before. You have to come to Him. Second, would you see that He recognized the power and authority of Jesus? He bows down before Christ. Again, get the picture of what this man potentially looks like. When was the last time he had bathed? He's walking among the dead. The blood is dried and caked. There's nothing pleasant about him. And he comes up and he literally, the text says, falls on his face in the dirt. He doesn't come up with fake spirituality. Oh, Jesus, it's great to see you. He doesn't just say, oh, I'll just raise my hands or I'll just sing a nice song. Those are wonderful things, don't get me wrong. But this is the essence of true worship. He gets on his face before the Lord. He's humble, he's broken, he's unashamed to admit his need for Christ. And he recognizes the power and authority of the Savior. And then look third, how he calls to Christ. Son of the Most High God, what business do we have? A demon-possessed man had greater understanding of who Christ was than the Pharisees and the scribes. Think about that. Even the demons know and worship. The Pharisees and the scribes and religious leaders are just standing there mocking, I won't do my Pharisee voice again. Defiant, proud, arrogant, resistant, plotting against him to kill him from day one. And a demon-possessed crazy person finally is lucid and said, you are the Son of God. He knows that Jesus has the power and authority to change his life, so he asks. How many know that when we call on him, he will always answer? Come to my throne of grace with boldness as my children and let your requests be made known. Guys, that has to change how we pray. It has to change how we think. We can go to him and call on him, and He will meet our need. Now here's what's interesting, as the demons recognize, look at verses eight to 10, as the demons recognize Jesus' authority over them, that they basically throw up the white flag. But we don't have a chance against you. We're many, we're legion. There are thousands of us. Legion in the Roman army was 6,000 people. We don't know if it was 6,000 demons, but it was certainly enough to fill 2,000 pigs. You would think a big group of demons would say, well, we're going to take on Christ. But they say, "Uh uh-uh, we know you're Jesus. I I tell you what, please don't send us away. Please, but but just send us into the pigs. Jesus has absolute authority. Absolute authority. Confidence over them. Remember that when temptation hits you this week. Remember that when your faith gets tested and tried, and you think I can't do it, I'm not strong enough. The, the temptation's too much. I, I've got to give in. I've got to yield. I've yielded so many times. I, just, just one more time. Uh-uh. The demons shudder before Christ. You have the power of Christ in you. You have the spirit of Christ in you. The demons shudder before that. The Bible says resist the devil and he will do what? Tell me. Flee from you. Not casually walk away going, I'm coming back. When we resist him, he runs. Jesus has all the authority and all the power. Notice that the demons don't say, well, let us invade the disciples. They're weak. Let us go after the crowd. We got some impressionable people here, Jesus. They say, please just let us go in the pigs. Why pigs? Because pigs were unclean. This is a picture of sin. Send us into the pigs. Picture the scene here. One minute you've got this man screaming and cutting himself, filled with hundreds, maybe thousands of demons, and the next 2,000 pigs are squealing because they're wild and crazy and demon-possessed. I want you to hear what one pig in distress sounds like. You guys play? Multiply that times 2,000 you imagine the noise? Remember, it's a natural amphitheater. There's a herd of 2,000 pigs. And all of a sudden, the demons go from this man into them. And you've got that sound amplified, amplified, amplified. And, and, the, and the amphitheater effect's going. And throughout the whole region, as they're standing there on the shore, you've got the sound of wild, crazy, insane pigs. And the pigs run down the hill and they run right into the water and they die. The water's now tainted. Israel, wake up. Now it's affecting the fishing. Now, because pigs run clean, they couldn't just go grab them and pull the carcasses out. They've got a real problem here. That's the effect sin has. It does collateral damage to those that are around. Now it's going to affect the fishermen and the tradesmen and and shipping. It's going to affect everything on Galilee. Because sin was there. But look now, let's finish, at the work of Christ. As the pigs go off the cliff and they plunge into the lake and they drown, instantly the man who had the unclean spirit is completely changed. Minutes before, he had been naked and homeless and crazy, covered in filth and excrement, spewing obscenity from his mouth, He was nasty in every way. But look at verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, but they found something else. They observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. By the time... The pig farmers run into town, not a long distance, and they say, you won't believe what just happened? And the people say, well, we want to see it ourselves, because there was a buzz around Galilee anyway with Jesus. And they run out to the shore, and Jesus is standing there. Let, let's call that, what, 20, 30 minutes tops? By the time they get there, this man is clothed and at peace and in his right. How could he change that profoundly? Everything, all his thinking and reasoning and rational behavior was a result of Christ. The complex transformation took place when he recognized Jesus, he ran to Jesus, he humbled himself before Jesus, and he experienced the presence and the power of Jesus, and Jesus changed him forever. Now, that same change can take place in any life. But it can only take place when we are washed by the blood of Christ. It will not take place by me being a good person or saying the right prayers or going to church or knowing the right people or giving the right amount. It will only change by the redeeming, forgiving blood of Jesus Christ this man finds out what every single person needs to know that Christ is the only answer for your life and my life and he's the only one that can produce a complete and radical change. And I want you to see this morning, he doesn't ease into his salvation. He doesn't say, well, let me me find out, let me take some time to process the information and kind of progress into salvation at my own pace when I feel comfortable and ready. So much of modern philosophy and even modern theology suggests that. Salvation requires a confession of sin, giving yourself totally to the one who can deliver you and forgive you and and just giving yourself to Christ so he will redeem you. And when that happens, listen now, salvation is instantaneous. The washing of sin is instantaneous. Regeneration, new life, is instantaneous. The Holy Spirit's indwelling is instantaneous. It didn't take this man months to change. the, the, The change showed, I would say, in less than 20 minutes. Crazy, bleeding, out of his mind, naked. Now he's sitting there having a conversation clothed. And the people that had been terrified of him now are terrified of what they see because they cannot believe. How different it is. Listen, I don't know all of you this morning, but I'm telling you right now, Jesus Christ can do the same thing for you today. Whatever's holding you back, whatever's dominating your life, from sin to self to unclean spirits, everything's related. He can deliver you from them, and He can change your life. And if you've never experienced that, you need to give your heart to Him. And believer, if you have given your life to Him, but you are not where you're supposed to be, you need to go back and surrender yourself to Him. I'm not talking about getting saved again. I'm talking about yielding self to Him. Because sin will eat you up. Now look at the last thought. I've got to finish. It's an important thought as we close. As Jesus gets ready to go back across the lake, because apparently He had just come across with this one guy. As he gets ready to go back across the lake, the man begs him, "Please, can I go? Lord, let me just let me spend some time with you." "Oh, it'll be great. I I, I now I know. Let me let me come along." Jesus says, "No." "Why?" "Wouldn't it be good for him to get some time with the Lord and to be near him and to hear his teaching and see some more miracles? Maybe his faith will really be confirmed and strengthened, it seems reasonable. I would say even helpful that he would go with Jesus. But Jesus says, no. And this echoes back to what Joe, Don, and John said earlier. He says, go tell others. Go home and report the great things that have happened to you and what the Lord has done and how he's had mercy on you. Essentially, go back to your family and friends and tell them. And I thought, what family and friends? He doesn't have any family. He's been running around the caves. Anybody that's up there is crazy, spiritually filthy. Who wants to hang out with this guy? The only friends he has are long gone, but there are people who knew him throughout the Gerasenes. And the crowd that knew him that came understood what had happened, and Jesus says, now go back, because I didn't just make you a little bit more sane. It's not like now you can just kind of talk and and reason a little bit more. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus made him completely and utterly different. Now he is calm and pure and clear-minded and he's affirming the power of Christ. Can you imagine the power of that witness? It's the same witness you and I have. Listen, I got saved at nine I grew up in church. I never knew all the bad stuff. I've lived about as clean a life, not bragging here, I've lived about as clean a life as you can live. Some of you come out of turmoil and pain and harshness and drugs and alcohol and abuse and things that you wouldn't want to admit in front of us. Either way, you and I both have the same story. We would be lost without Christ. And because of Christ, we are different. And when you are truly changed by Christ, those who know you best will be most greatly affected by the change. Anyone could witness to a stranger, and we should. But the people who know you won't be fooled if your witness isn't sincere. Maybe the reason most Christians don't have a strong impact on others is is because our lives aren't totally sold out to Christ. We're not living the hard way. So we don't want to be seen as hypocritical or in some way having to hold now a new standard because people are watching. I want to tell you, this man bowed before Jesus before he got saved. How much more do you think he bowed after he got saved? Whatever your story is, whether you're like me and you've kind of been saved almost your whole life, or whether you just got saved in the last six months, either way, we have been just as radically changed in our spirit as this man is. Now we are called, listen, I'm done, to live as those who are radically changed by Christ. There is a reason. You know I've not been in a series. There is a reason why the Lord's given us these messages. I looked up the word radically in the the thesaurus, And I found these five words, listen, fundamentally, drastically, completely, profoundly, and deeply. That's it. That's the change that we see in the demoniac. And that's what happened and happens to us as believers. But listen, some of us have been saved so long that we've forgotten the freshness of it. I've been saved 36, almost 37 years. Actually, 38 this summer. There are many times I forget the freshness of it. And we need to ask the Lord to restore to us the joy of our salvation so that we can go to others and say, let me tell you what's happened to me. Let me tell you about the great things God's done in my life. Let me tell you about the mercy that God has shown. And I want to share with you how you can go from darkness to light. It's a great gift we've been given, isn't it? It's a great calling we've been given. Go into the world and preach the gospel as those fundamentally, drastically, completely, profoundly, and deeply changed. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you this morning for the incredible work that you have done in redeeming us from sin. We really don't understand, because we're finite and human, why you would love us, why you would care, why you would want to redeem those who rejected you, who chose sin. But Lord, you do love us, and you did redeem us. And you have fundamentally, completely, profoundly, deeply changed us. It may not look as drastic as it did for the demoniac, but Lord, that doesn't change the fact that we have been changed the same way he has. Lord, you are calling us, you are calling us as a church to be different. To look different to talk different, to act different, to speak different. Father, confront us in the areas of our life that need that alteration and encourage us in the areas of our life in which we're surrendered and yielded to you. We pray, Father, as Joe said earlier, that you would do a mighty work in our lives, that you would do a mighty work in this church, that you would do a mighty work in this city and this region. You have placed us here. Now, Father, we commit ourselves and surrender ourselves to you so that you will do that work. Lord, we know the enemy will fight us. He'll tempt us. He'll create doubt. But let us remember that the demons yielded to Christ. They knew his authority and his power. And, Lord, we do know your authority and your power over all things. We praise you this morning that we're victorious in Christ, that we're overcomers, that you have secured us forever. Father, we love you so much. We worship and praise you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.